Getting sober requires a lot more than mind over matter, a lot more than willpower. It's about leveraging the support around you. People in recovery typically need a mix of medical help, emotional support, and changes in lifestyle to manage their addiction, not just mental determination. As both a therapist and someone embracing the recovery lifestyle, there's one tool I always recommend to people needing extra accountability, Soberlink. Soberlink is a high-tech breath analyzer system designed to help you get and stay sober. And here's why I love it. You'll test the same day every day, eliminating testing anxiety. Friends and family receive instant test results, helping you rebuild trust and preventing relapse. Accountability is a part of that, and it's something to really be embraced. Devices have built-in facial recognition, so your support circle knows you're testing, and tamper-resistant sensors flag any attempts at trying to beat the system, so your sobriety is never questioned. So let 2024 be your best year yet. Visit Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M to sign up and receive $50 off your device. That's Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M. And let accountability be your guide. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. My name is Dwayne Osterlin, and I'm your host, And we are on to another episode. So today our guest is Chris Howard, and he is the founder of Ethos Recovery and Lifestyle Interventions. He's going to talk a little bit about his own journey of recovery and then talk about working with families and helping families deal with addiction and heal as a whole system. And we're also going to talk about that balance between accountability and empathy and how we can balance those both to be able to heal and provide really good treatment for people who are out there suffering. I think it's a great conversation, and I hope you get a lot out of it. Don't forget, if you are getting a lot out of the Addicted Mind podcast, please share it with a friend or write a review. That really does help give the podcast a lot of exposure and helps people find the podcast. And think about joining our Facebook group. Just go to Facebook and type in the Addicted Mind podcast and click join. All right, let's go ahead and start this episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. My guest today is Chris Howard. He's going to share a little bit of his own recovery story and also talk about, I think, a very important topic, and that is the family unit in recovery and working with the family. Chris, why don't you introduce yourself? Yeah, thanks for having me on. My name is uh, Chris Howard. My background story. It's always weird. I never know where to start off here when I'm thinking about the wreckage, the good, the bad, like essentially everything that's transpired. But essentially what kind of got me into this work was me destroying my life. I say that with no pride and, and nor shame either. It just is. It is what it is. 
which I think is common with a lot of people in like substance abuse recovery. There's a lot of like the people who tend to work in it are people who have gone through it. Not always, but. But yeah, definitely. They can understand it and that destruction that comes with it. Yeah. And I think we find purpose. I, it's so like tied into like this 12 step process of like your purpose is like helping people. It's not the 12 steps. Right. But like the ideology. Right coincides with the 12 step process is like giving it back. So, okay. So how I got into this work, I'll, I'll do the uh, amended version. Sure, um, sure. I, grew, I grew up in Los Angeles, born and raised here. My mom was schizoaffective growing up. So I, I had been, by the time I was maybe 10 years old, I had been on every, like almost every psych ward, all of you, every major mental psych ward growing as a child, visiting my mom, because she was constantly being put, up, put on, put on 5150s, 5250s. So I kind of already had like some introduction to the mental health space. And then I went through like foster care as a result of that. Right. And right. so like I had, there was one social worker who I was, when I was really young, her name was Heather. And she was kind of like, I wouldn't say like a motherly figure, but just another support system. Right. Right. But I had that and, you know, I was screwing up in school and they were trying to push me in this other direction. And I was going whatever direction I was. And essentially what ended up happening is I was addicted to drugs, I ran with a social group where, you know, I felt like, uh, I felt like the rite of passage for me into adulthood was going to prison. Right. And then basically following that series of events through high school, whatever, I ended up selling drugs, you know, was kind of just a drug addict and, you know, drug dealer. And so like living, it sounds like living in, in crisis all through your childhood, like constant crisis. If you're going into all of these places and 5150s, never knowing what's going to happen. Yeah. Which, which after a while, crisis just becomes the norm. And you're like, okay, like this is, this is your desensitized. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. So eventually what ended up happening, that's basically all the drama and stuff. Amended quick version. My house ended up getting raided for the second time. I was living with my grandmother and um, this cop, because the police were coming out to my house. I lived in Burbank and the police were coming out to my house so frequently. They knew me since I was a child. You know, I'm like 23 years right. old. And this one cop hated me because I always kind of got these like sympathy, like I would get caught with drugs and they'd let me go. Like back in, you know, early 2000, late 90s, if you got caught with a quarter ounce of weed, you're going to jail. Whereas like now it's not the same. Right, right. This, this one cop showed up and he's like, you need to get out of here. I ended up going into a program and it was back. It was just a really structured recovery house high social model, no clinical. There weren't even a lot of recovery houses at that time. You know, there was before Parity Act and the proliferation of the substance abuse industry. So like I had went through this program and it was much more, it was different. I had been in Tarzana Treatment Center one time and it was, that was kind of the foundation for me getting sober because it was much more the process was more rigid but for me i kind of needed that because it was like i was selling myself out selling out my family i was engaging in all of this maladaptive behavior and no one was really telling me anything you know right what was it about the the raid and getting caught in that way that said okay i gotta change i gotta do something different 
instead of going back to the old way. So it was weird because I had this like, I like DBT skills, you know, and the dialectical aspect of it. And there was this aspect where like, I, I wanted to go to prison because I felt like if I did five years in prison, I would come out and be a man because that was what I had saw. Right. But right. And, and not, but, and at the same time, I was petrified of being a loser the rest of my life. I didn't really want to get sober when I got sober. I was, I was truly afraid of being a loser the rest of my existence, you know, right. just kind of right. having no ambitions or purpose. Yeah, when you say that, those kind of weird belief systems that somehow get created in our childhood that we start to follow that lead us down these paths of just craziness and destruction and heartbreak. And yet we still hold on to these weird beliefs that we don't even know are, I mean, we don't really know them totally on a conscious level, if that makes sense. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, well, and especially at that age, unless you have someone who's willing to help kind of, I, th I, I hold the belief system that often, especially in group dynamics, like the group dynamic in times can help elevate your level of consciousness, you know, yeah, like the things bring to consciousness what I'm not either willing to see or I just cannot see. And I think that's what it was is. I had a friend who ended up dying of an overdose and right before he died, he basically, I was like talking about, I need to go to the military to get away from everything. Like just, you know, do the geographic thing. And he was like, dude, you should just go. Everyone here is like, doesn't give a shit, you know, forgive me for cussing. Sorry about that. No, that's okay. Uh, I think for me, that was a pivotal step. And that was what was really beneficial when I had entered this recovery house, because the whole process was really meant about centered around like mirroring and peer feedback and peer accountability. So there was always somebody kind of what we would call pulling your covers, you know, like if yeah. you're not being really honest or you're not being transparent or you're not willing to kind of do some of that work, there'd always be someone like, are you serious? You really believe that, Chris? And then I'd be like... You know, it would it would force me to dig in areas and, you know, wasn't always right in terms of what the feedback was. But just having that there was something where I'd be like, OK, like here's an opportunity for me to dig a little deeper. And uh, so, yeah, basically, I went through that process through that. Basically, I was like working like a like a beater job at the pavilions in West Hollywood, right up the street from the log cabin. It's a famous little AA meeting in L.A. And there was this guy, Michael Christensen, he's like had like this whole very 12 step, like just pray for God to give you a, a, a right, job that right. pick for you. And I'm a bit of an atheist on some level, but I'll, I'll just take direction. You know, I was really, especially my first two years of sobriety, I was like, I'll just pray. And it's funny. One day I come home from work and um, these two guys who ended up kind of being my mentors, basically like, we want to hire you at the recovery house, you know, and at the recovery house, you know, I think it was a different time back then where they were, involved in the family system they were no matter what right, it wasn't right. like now, where, where 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 before it was like hyper clinic like before it wasn't so hyper clinical you know and i don't think either is a bad or good thing either it's just it was a different time you know so that became the beginning of my journey really working with families and it was really good in that program because the program was 12 to 18 months so we had a long ride and the work you were able to actually accomplish coaching parents and helping them learn how to hold boundaries and stuff like that, I think was 
a crash course, you know, one of those things. Yeah. I feel I think of it, I think of it like ER doctors or like, you know, when you're when you're having to do like clinical hours, they're like, here, we're throwing you in and you, you have supervision, but a lot of it you are figuring it out in vivo, you know? So I think that was where the, that that was definitely the beginning of my exposure to working with families, you know. Again, starting to see that family dynamic as you started to do your own healing and work in that unit. So what did you start to see? I think, you know, I think there's a lot of, I want to be mindful about how I communicate this because there's a lot of broad generalizations about families are always enabling. And I don't think that that's always true. That's not always the experience. Some people just aren't willing to change. And it's not necessarily, I don't agree that like, it's always, it's always family systems. And I agree family system is fundamentally important, right? But I think there's this tendency to believe, especially in in my end of the industry, where I think oftentimes you're dealing with people who are from a higher socioeconomic status and people go, well, it's the family's enabling, it's the family's enabling. And that is true, but I've seen families hold the boundaries. I think some of it is... I think the hardest thing is that I see with families now is getting to a point where they have to go like that kind of what the either tough love or letting go with love is like where someone is perpetuating themselves down a path of self-destruction and along that path they're you know maybe they've endured some trauma but they're traumatizing everyone as a result of their trauma Right. And then families, families endure the abuse because it's their child, you know, and I think that's been probably for me, like the hardest thing to watch is like people who maybe are more personality disordered and stuff and the families can't let go. And I don't even know if them letting go would actually change some of it, but they they put themselves through so much pain and suffering as a result of their love for this person who either can't or will not change, you know? So there's a whole system dynamic that that's going on that you have to look at. And I like that you say that one size doesn't fit all, that we have to really be able to understand that family dynamic, that system, to be able to help them and for them to be able to help themselves. No, totally. And it's interesting because... It's interesting when we talk, I'm so happy you said the one size fits all thing, but it's interesting because now it's kind of a sideboard, but I think it ties into what we're talking about is like trauma is the dominant narrative in mental health and substance abuse treatment at this point. And, and what I'm about to say is it's not that I don't believe in trauma. I just don't believe every addict is a result of trauma. Right. I believe. And at the same time, I believe um, pretty much every addict I know has trauma. Right. So. Right. But there's the idea that the, the root cause of addiction is trauma in all cases. And in some cases, I've seen people who relatively, if you ask them or even their families, they go, hey, there's not really any trauma. I mean, that's hard for me to believe anyways, because I feel like existence can be traumatic. But I think some people use for lack of purpose. Some people lack social skills. But it's interesting when you push back on people who've adopted the trauma narrative, they cannot break away from that one size fits all approach. It's become very difficult for some clinicians to separate that and go, oh, it becomes, well, if if I go, well, maybe they do it because they're socially isolated. They go, well, that's trauma. 
You know, everything becomes trauma. And I go, well, yes, you're right. There's anxiety, there's fears, but it's a, it's deeper than just trauma in some cases, you know? So it's an interesting, it's an interesting trend. And I'm sure there's, a, I think there's been other trends in the industry, right? Like that, hey, here's what this is. And I think this is a thing where we got to go, hey, like this is a thing that's real and it's, it can be salient and undermine someone's existence. And it's not the end all be all, you know? Right. And, and so what I hear you saying is that in some ways, I, I think it's, it's like the word trauma can be overused or too soft. I don't know. I know that's not the, what I'm trying to say that the, the word trauma is, um, doesn't necessarily always fit. Maybe sometimes, yeah, that was difficult, but maybe that's not trauma. I don't know if that, if that's, yeah, you're on the right thing. So, so basically Harvard just did like, it's like either, I think it was either a review. No, it was a small study and they were talking about this concept of bracket creep and bracket creep from my understanding in terms of what I read is like, so here's like within this window, trauma fits big T trauma, essentially, right? We go, Hey, robberies, murders, your house burns down, like stuff like that. But then we can take as if like, I took this pen and dropped it and someone goes, that's true. That's trauma. They've actually shown that like that can actually uh, induce more mental health problems. It can perpetuate more mental health issues in some cases, right? Because we start to take trivial life experiences and go, this is traumatic. Well, how does our, how does our physiology respond to that? How do we, how do we physically respond to the aspect of like the world being this traumatic space that maybe you feel is infringing upon you? The positive that came out of it is like with some psychoeducation and stuff like that, you can actually fix that for people. But I think one of the things, so for instance, one of the things I do is I still have like a long-term recovery house doing the same things. And the other day we had a guy go, he was 40 minutes late for cooking breakfast. His chore is to cook breakfast for the entire community. Right. Right. And I asked him, I was like, why were you late? And he goes, I have an underlying repressed childhood trauma, like in this very clinical way, like no, no lay person would have said it this way, unless you're like versed on it, or you've been, have had therapy to understand it. You wouldn't say that. And I was like, I literally looked at him. I was like, listen, I'm not pushing back on any of that stuff. That is not a rationale for why breakfast is late though. Like you still have to suit up and show up for your life. That is the bottom line, you know? And I think that is uh, one of the things I think has been a you know major change that is hard because I think a lot of also, like I've talked to clinicians about this and it's funny. I had one conversation where a clinician started whispering when we were talking about like, like basically challenge, emotional reasoning, right? Emotional reasoning tied into trauma, right? CBT, you're familiar right. with, right? Emotional reasoning tied into trauma. And the therapist in the middle of the conversation inadvertently weren't paying attention, started whispering. And I looked at her and I go, wait, why are we whispering? And it's really like this thing that's very taboo because we're working in a helping field. You want to help people. You don't want to like belittle them or make them feel worse about their suffering. Right. And in some aspects, I believe our, our job is to help people question their maladaptive belief systems, their coping strategies. And I think that's 
one of the major trends I, I find even with families, you know, too, it's like very one of they're, they're afraid to be almost honest and direct with like the identified patient, you know? Yeah, I can understand that. You were talking about how you love DBT, which is dialectical behavior therapy, which I love DBT too. It's like one of my favorite things. But one of the things I see about DBT is that accountability perspective of like, you got to lay it, lay it out and you still have choices to make, even if you're having difficult feelings, even if you're having pain, like the example you used of that person not showing up to their responsibility, they still have to, to, to deal with that. They still have to deal with the pain and take on that responsibility and having accountability. And I can see how DBT fits into that as well. Yeah, totally. And I think, I think too, like what isn't maybe people don't recognize, or I think the aspect of where the rationale or justification for not engaging in life as a result of underlying trauma, anxiety, depression, whatever it may be, right? The withdrawal from your existence or uh, actively participating in your life actually could be what's perpetuating a lot more of those problems, right? Is because it's almost like learned helplessness in certain respects, right? Like I can't do this. And it's like, well, you can, it's just going to be really painful. Like I live like, like on my social media, I talk a lot right now is like, because I often see like these, um, um, like commercials for treatment centers. Right. And it'll be like, you know, a drone footage, beautiful pool. It's like, you know, the chef bringing out the fresh plate of fruit. And I'm like, I don't know what detox, like that environment feels great to be in, but to be honest with you, often working on mental health and substance abuse problems, it often gets worse before it gets better because yeah. you no longer have that to shield you to cope. And then what you're left with is physical detox, psychological detox, you know, and you're, it doesn't, it feels worse before it gets better often, you know? And I yeah, think you, that you don't have the coping right. skills to be able to deal with all of that emotional pain that the addiction has been covering up and soothing. Yeah. I even talk to families because they're like, oh, we just need to address the addiction. The drugs are the problem. And I'm like, the drugs, the philosophy I come from, drugs aren't the problem. They're actually a phenomenal solution for human beings. The problem is, is they can't cope for some reason. Maybe there's underlying trauma, right? That stuff needs to be addressed. Depression, anxiety, those are actually all the problems. It's interesting to see in the last like two or three years, how mental health has proliferated, but in my, and now, and even when you're trained clinically, you treat both concurrently. You don't treat them separately. You treat depression right. and substance abuse. You, you run them at the same time. So it's interesting because everyone's talking about mental health and, and like co-occurring disorders as if this is something new, especially like more media type stuff. Clinicians obviously understand this more, but I'm like, this is how it's, always been it's never not been that it's the drugs are their people's solution it's not for them it's not a problem even even when it is a problem it's not a problem you know right it's the way out of of pain yeah it's a solution for suffering and in a way to not have to 
sit in whatever you have to sit in. And sometimes sitting in, like another reason I think other people, like especially young people, why do they use drugs, in my opinion, right, is boredom. Is it like literally I like boredom? A, a lot of even what I do with like some of the mentoring stuff is truly just geared towards getting people out surfing, backpacking, getting weekend trips, filling your time with activities that make you feel good about the direction you're in. And maybe you're building new skills, like picking up fly fishing right. or something like that, you know? Engagement. And more out nature. Yeah, engagement and out in nature, I think, is like the name of the game because I think the phones are also like a whole nother. I mean, I could spend an hour talking to you about that as right, a right. potential problem, you know. But I, I have another question. What about the role of empathy in all of this? Because I definitely understand having accountability and kind of saying, look, you got to move forward. You got to move past through your pain. You've, you've got to cope with it. Where does empathy come into that equation? I think empathy comes into that equation through support and like not feeling like someone is like, I'm just telling you, you need to take accountability. You need to take ownership over your life. It's not, it's always weird because when we're having these conversations, there's pieces that are correct. But like the whole, when you're looking at it, it's like, yeah, I can sit and tell somebody, yeah, you need to do, that's not going to help anyone. Right. It's also being like, yeah, you got to take accountability. I know you're in pain, you're suffering. Hey, you can't walk yourself right now. I'll walk with you for a little bit. Having that, I think community is, I think there's a, I don't think I know, there's a famous TED talk, one that had like 2 million views or something crazy like that, where he's like, you know, the cause of addiction is a lack of connection, essentially. You know? Right, right. Yeah. The, the rat, the famous rat experiment where the rats in the cage and, got addicted uh-huh. but once they had community they left the drugs yeah. alone community yeah. and they had like toys to play with and things to do right. you know so um i'm a big believer in like i don't think a lot of people are going to just figure it out on their own volition i think that the empathy aspect is might actually even be one of the most important aspects because a lot of times the mind state that individuals who struggle with mental health and substance abuse are in is so deprived as a result of their life experience, who knows, a different experience with other people who've been through similar experiences who are like, hey, come on, like, let's go. I'm a big believer in like group dynamics. Like, I think the social model is key. I'm a huge supporter of clinical. I just think often there's so much emphasis now placed on clinical. And I think this is like the pendulum shift because programs before were heavy social model, right? And I think there needs to be now, now it's gone super far clinical. And I think there needs to be some meeting in the middle because one of the things working with families that families have a hard time with putting their kids in the programs is their kid maybe goes into a program for smoking pot and comes out smoking heroin or shooting heroin, right? And because the culture of the community, that has not, you can have Dr. Phil there or whatever clinical team, you have the best clinical team in the world. If the culture right. of that community is undermining clinical, it doesn't, those are their peers, you know? So I think the aspect of the merge like it coming closer together, especially in like residential settings is an area where like, I'm like, I get super passionate about because I think like, I think us as a community, bad like tying into the empathy thing, what you're saying, like having other people who've walked through it who are like, you know, I'm going to hold you accountable. You got to cut the shit. 
And I have love and compassion and I will walk you through this no matter what. I'm going to have boundaries with you, right? And you got to, you, 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 you have to do your work, but I'll, I'm here to help you, you know? Right. It, it, it goes back to that DBT model where you have dialectics. I can, I can see why you're a DBT fan and myself too, because, you know, when you look at the dialectics of, you know, the super hard love accountability and on one side, and then the other side is this very empathetic understanding your trauma, but no accountability and finding that space in the middle where you have that optimal place for care. And I, I think we all all need that. We need some accountability and then we need some empathy. We need that mix um, that creates a potent formula for healing and personal growth and being your best self. Yeah, I totally agree. And it's one of the things that I think is actually one of the problems with social media and stuff. I won't go off on the big tangent about it. But I think like, I had to check myself even on some of the content I was posting, because I can paint one picture of myself and people judge us based off of these, you know, 20 second tidbits, they go, Oh, this is who you are. And I go, Well, where's my balance too, right? So it's easy for me to go, Hey, you go down that route. I also have to have balance in the way I'm presenting myself, because that's, that's how people perceive us, they judge us based on that, you know? Absolutely. So what about like when families are trying to do this together? I mean, this is, you know, when you got this whole system and all of these pieces moving about, um, how do they start to, to, to pull this together to, to help the whole unit heal? I mean, it's complex. I think, I think, you know, just as well as I do. I mean, each, I, I think the number one thing is everyone being on the same page and also, if they can't get on the same page, is I, a lot of times I do like family contracts where like, you know, there's there's a idea of what the solution is, let's say that, you know, and there's usually one party who's like, I'm not willing, I'm, I can't, you know, I can't hold this boundary, I won't do this. And it's like, okay, like, I'm not going to push you to do that boundary. And what would it take for what would you need to see happen? with said loved one for you to be at a place where you go, Hey, this is a boundary. I, I may need to consider now, you know, right. and learning, learning to like, because I think when I was like mentored, it was like, I think it was a different time. And it was like, you need to get the family on board. Like it was like much more rigid and stuff. And now I'm like, yeah, that doesn't work though. And I've seen it not work. I, yeah. It doesn't because they're reluctant. And until they have an experience that justifies that change within themselves, they're not they, even if you have them do it, the way that they deliver the message when they're not serious, their loved one will be able to tell that they're not serious. So it doesn't stick anyways. So I right. think that aspect is making sure everyone's on the same page and also understanding. I'm glad you brought up the empathy thing because now it's on my mind is like this isn't about punishing anybody ever. It's never substance abuse. And I think that was like one of the main things I felt like when I had gotten sober and I think the narrative 
around it was like this heavy, you need to just straighten these guys out and blah, 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 where I think right, right. Yeah, we need to help these guys get straight. And we also need to understand the reason why I want them to get straight is because they're like destroying their relationships with their family. They feel miserable as a result of it. They're, they're depressed. They're f- flooded with anxiety. All of those things were playing into why they felt the way they felt. And I think that is probably the most important thing is like what you're saying, the DBT stuff is like, there's a reason for all that stuff. And we were actively invested in you and we're doing this because we love and care about you. And maybe you can't hold yourself to some of this stuff, or maybe we need to kind of change some things. So I think everyone being on the same page, that's the, that that's my answer to that, you know? Yeah. And I, I think it's challenging for any of us to marry those two things of, compassion mixed with accountability and boundaries. And a lot of times I think due to our own discomfort or, or whatever, we mix those things up and we can't hold those things together. Those, uh, what I would call like compassionate boundaries, you know, Mm -hmm. um, this is the accountability. And if you can't do that, here's the boundary and the consequence. And I still care about you and love you, but this is it. And being able to hold those two things, it can be challenging. Yeah, and I think it's also challenging. I, I think specifically if I if I'll, I'll tie in the one group is like young adult, like young adult who are financially dependent on their families. Like I see a lot of families sending these young adults to like luxury based treatment centers, which look a lot more like the four seasons and I think would be completely suitable for an executive. I don't really feel like it's really the therapeutic space for not that they need to be in a punitive environment either. I just think they need to be in an environment where it doesn't, it doesn't feel like it kind of, if your relapse is, you know, cliffside, the cliffside of, you know, some, you know, beautiful resort, your meals are getting prepared. What we need from you actually is to engage in life and stop and, and start adopting responsibility in certain respects. That's one aspect of what we need. Age appropriate so, responsibility, learning to, to take care of yourself, learning to feed yourself, learning to cook, learning to clean up, learning to do things to make things happen in your life. Yeah. And I think that's a big disconnect that I, the demographic I work with, that's the major disconnect is the families are, families often equate more money with better treatment and it's not necessarily true. You know, more money, more money means maybe more amenities and stuff like that. And I don't think often young adults, that specific demographic who are financially dependent on their families, they need to learn how to function in reality and and also learn how to manage stressors because the world that we're sending our kids out into, it's unforgiving in a lot of ways. And how are we teaching them to foster resilience and have and foster community that when they feel like they can't push forward anymore, they have someone who goes, hey, we're here to support you. We'll walk you through that. You know, I think that's probably the major one major thing I kind of consistently see with family systems. Yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely challenging. I I think as parents, you know, it's so hard to to see your child in in pain. We're, you know, in some ways wired not to let them be in pain. But sometimes that pain is is helpful and motivating and healing. And it's finding that right balance of those two things that can be so challenging. 
Yeah, totally. I, I want to tell you this quick thing. I just before I know we're kind of almost wrapping up, but there's this thing. So we often get guys who come into the program or guys who I work with individuals who hate their parents, right? And, and and obviously everyone has, we have family systems issues, no matter what you have, everyone probably has something they could be, be mad at their families. And often I'll walk them through this like kind of narrative. And I go like, think about it, like your mom, let's just go your mom, that's it. We don't have to look at your dad, but your mom, she gestates you for nine months. Then you pop out, the scream wails off, her brain starts to rewire. And then she's feeding you from her body for another nine months, six months to a year. And then, you know, you they see you walk the first time, you crack your leg, they hear this first scream of, you know, crying fear, you crash your big wheel, you have all these life experiences that happen. And then fast forward, you're 20 years old, and it's they get a call in the middle of the night from the police saying you're in jail. I go, as much as you guys hate your parents, you cannot psychologically wrap your mind around the pain and suffering that must come from that. And, and at the very least, when we talk about compassion, sympathy, specifically in a situation like that, at the very least, listen, you hate your parents, whatever, they've made bad mistakes. Just try to wrap your mind around that, you know, in your short existence, you've endured a lot of pain. Try to imagine having the responsibility of another human being, you know, it's yeah. always, and it's one of these exercises where like, sometimes I'll say it to the guys and it's like, you, you ever seen like a dog when it does like the inquisitive head turn? Like, they're like, oh, I never thought of it that way, you know? Right, um, right. But yeah, that, that, that's that feedback you were talking about earlier, the part that you can't see or you're locked into one way of thinking and you can't mm -hmm. see this alternative and you need other people to steer you to that alternative way of looking at it to be able to see something different, a different possibility. Yeah. Yeah, no, totally. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, no, I'm passionate about it. Yeah, definitely. I mean, this is uh, hard work, but at the same time, being able to see people heal and, and get better, you know that that's a real possibility. Yeah, and it's also just like the exactly watching them see, like heal, but also that they almost like their hero's journey, like almost being, yeah. getting people to be a part of their hero's journey as like they go out and figure out the world, I think is something that is like, there are times where I'm like, I'm like, wow, I like, like I, the payment from this situation isn't really monetary. It's more spiritual, you know, yeah. like I, I, like there's an aspect of that. And then there's times where you're like, why am I doing this? You know? <laughs> Well, it's called being human, right? Totally. <laughs> we, move, we move back and forth through all of that stuff. So, all right. So we're getting close to the end of our time. One of the, the questions I love to ask at the, at the end of each episode is if someone out there is struggling, maybe there's a family struggling out there and you had one opportunity to say one thing to them, what would you want to tell them? What would you want to say to them? Well, I feel like the one I'm going to say is very cliche, which would be like, ask for help and think outside the box. I, I feel like there's often like, here's how this is done. And there's just not one way. Even the way I often feel like things should be done isn't the only way to be do it, to do things. So I think, I think thinking outside the box in terms of how you're helping 
you know, said loved one or yourself even, right, is thinking outside the box and embrace discomfort. Embrace discomfort. That's what it is, is like, I feel like for a lot of people is like embrace more discomfort, lean into it. Like life is hard. Existence is hard. You have to put one foot. Sometimes the answer, and it's not a hyper masculine answer or anything like that. Sometimes the answer is just putting one foot in front of the other, you know? Absolutely. Think outside of the box and embrace the discomfort that may come with that yeah 100%. absolutely thank thank you so much chris for coming on to the addicted mind podcast where can people find you so my family interventions mentoring uh, website is lifestyleinterventions.com and then my long-term recovery house for men is ethos recovery dot com so either of those two you can reach out and then i have tiktok is real chris howard where i'm talking about mental health stuff substance abuse stuff and then like you can just peer into my life and actually get to know who i am i post funny stuff on there too but mo- majority of the content is geared towards like mental health and substance awesome chris i will put all the links in the show notes at the chris thank you for coming on to the show thank you All right, everyone, thank you for listening to the Addicted Mind podcast. As usual, all the show notes will be at theaddictedmind.com and you can check out all the links there. And as I always do, if you are getting a lot out of the Addicted Mind podcast, rate and review us, leave me a review in iTunes. That really does help. And I really do read them. And it's just great to hear from people who are getting a lot out of the podcast and that this is valuable to people and that it helps people. So I love those reviews and it helps get the podcast a lot of exposure. And if you want to continue the conversation online, just join our Facebook group. Go to Facebook and type in the Addicted Mind podcast and click join. All right, everyone, have a wonderful day and I will talk to you on the next episode. I'm Madeline and I'm the host of the Happiest Sober Podcast. I got sober in my 20s after a decade of gray area drinking and the greatest plot twist of all time was realizing that alcohol, the thing that I thought made my life the most happy and fun and exciting, was actually the exact thing preventing me from living my happiest and best life. My mom is 40 years sober and she joins me on my podcast very often. I like to call her my part-time co-host and I also bring you solo episodes where I share my top tips, tricks, and mindset shifts in sobriety and lots of how to's for navigating all the things sober from weddings to parties to holidays to bachelorette parties to trips. I'm also joined by so many guests who come on and share their sober stories and they're all so, so inspiring. I'm here to show you that life doesn't end when you quit drinking. In fact, it's very much the opposite. And no matter what your relationship was with alcohol, life can be the absolute happiest when you're sober. New episodes come out every Tuesday. You can listen to Happiest Sober Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.